Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. The yeah. Atlanta Braves yeah. have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves, champions. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And hello and welcome to another edition of From the Diamond. Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We are live in the Kia studios for what we are sure is going to be two very big hours of baseball talk because, Corey, the most wonderful time of year for baseball fans is here. That, of course, is, I think, the postseason. Opening day is pretty nice, but we have gotten through the marathon. We have arrived to October, and the Atlanta Braves are awaiting right now to see who they're going to be facing in the National League Division Series, and we've got a lot of stuff to get through as we preview whatever this matchup's going to be. And I think they're very glad to be sitting at home uh, amidst all this chaos, because uh, yeah. this is just, I mean, it's been, it feels like the NCAA tournament, and it's just completely nonstop action. And it really was, and I was watching some of these games as they all got started this weekend, and it was weird seeing the seed numbers by the team names, because that's not really a Major League Baseball thing, to your point, that's more of a, a college, as an NCAA tournament, a little March Madness, if you will, but you actually have to look at this bracket a little bit closer this year because of the expanded playoffs. We're going to talk a lot about that. I think we've gotten a lot of great baseball out of it. I've never been a big proponent of the one-game wild card after you play 162 games. I feel like if you need game 163, figure that out. I don't feel like the one-game wild card was really the most uh, fair arbiter of who should be advancing in the postseason. But I'm going to get off my soapbox, and I'm going to refocus things on the Atlanta Braves, who should feel pretty good about what they accomplished, of course, Corey, by winning the National League East for the fifth consecutive time when last we were sitting in this studio, the Braves had gotten off to a great start in that weekend series against the Mets. You had Max Fried stepping up, the bullpen stepping up, the Braves getting some big home runs. They beat up on Jacob deGrom, then they turned around. They beat up on Max Scherzer, they beat up on Chris Bassett, they swept the New York Mets, and then they clinched the National League East for the fifth straight year with one win down in Miami. And when you consider everything it took for the Braves to get to this point as we are now here on the precipice of what great things could be to come, what a ride it has already been with more miles to travel. Yeah, and I hate getting caught up in the whole recency bias thing, but I really do think of the the five straight, this feels like the most improbable, the most remarkable, the most impressive, whatever you know, whatever label you want to drop on it. It just feels to me, I, I know a year ago, you you wait until August 6th to go over 500, and you know, it had its own difficulties in watching, obviously, the Mets fall apart. The Mets didn't fall apart this time. The only way that the Braves were going to get past them was by running them down and playing hotter than almost anybody in all of baseball. You know, I mean, back by ten and a half games on June first, they wait until September sixth, the latest into a season in franchise history in which they had ever been tied or took the lead over in the in a right. division. I mean, just all these different variables to me, I just think this one just was mind boggling that they ended up being division champs. It really is, and when you consider you know that slow start, I mean, the Braves spent the first fifty games of their season well under five hundred, and they didn't get into to five hundred until their fifty fourth game. So basically, a third of the season, the Braves were a middle of the pack, going nowhere kind of team. Then they hit the the overdrive. They they went into hyperspace. Let's put it that way. They fixed the hyperdrive on whatever Millennium Falcon they were trying to get through the season with. 
and they went on to play 700 baseball nearly down the stretch. They didn't just you know have to chase down the New York Mets and were fortunate that New York fell back down to earth. They chased down a New York Mets team that played well over 600 ball from that point forward. The Braves were just that much better, despite, I know, their identical records at the end of the season. I think they went. it was more like Spaceball 1 and they went to Plaid. I think that's, that's, that's the it level of speed that we were talking about here. But, yeah, I mean, I, obviously they both played fantastic ball down the stretch. The, the Mets had a 623 second-half winning percentage. The Braves 662 uh, since the All-Star break, and they both end up winning 101 yeah. games, which makes, I mean, it makes what happened last weekend at Truist Park. I mean, that was literally everything, and to see the way things played out, one game would uh, would literally have swung everything yeah. had they dropped. Before. It really did. And in that final game, I mean, even though the Braves beat Scherzer, excuse me, beat Degrom and Scherzer in that order, they still had to win that game three to actually get the benefits of winning that series against the New York Mets. Now, taking two out of three would have been nice and all that stuff. And we don't know how those three games for each club would have played out. Although I have a pretty good idea how the Washington Nationals were going to play against the Mets in that final series because they're not a very good baseball team. The things might look different for the Braves, of course, with who they were trotting out there in Game 162. So, though both teams are 101 and 61, and that's the final tally, the Mets are having to play in this wild card round because of that series where they needed just that one win. And I think it's been pretty crazy to see thus far in the Mets' recent big games that the two guys that they were going to lean on the most in DeGrom and Scherzer have proven to be mere mortals at this point. And, you know, Father Time, of course, is undefeated. I just am stunned by Scherzer, right? I mean, you think about game one against the Padres. He gives up four home runs, that coming on the heels of two home runs allowed in that his start against the Braves. The first time he's allowed six home runs in back-to-back starts since 2016. Yeah. I mean, that's how long it's been since anyone's got to that guy like this. It was the worst postseason start of his entire career. Easily. And, you know, certainly coming off the heels of the Braves stuff, I mean, it just feels like, man, they invested. Steve Cohen invested so much into this team. I mean, mm-hmm. I just I'm I'm just a loss for words here. The fact that Scherzer was this bad on this stage. Well, we'll save some of those words for a little bit later in the show when we really start breaking down these wild card matchups because there are implications for the wild card round for the Braves. But it's not what the Mets are doing. They're going to have to deal with the Dodgers if they're fortunate enough to get through the San Diego Padres. Though, if we saw what round one was, we know that round two is going to be that much more pressure for the New York Mets. We'll talk about all that a little bit later, but as we have already discussed here, you know, the Braves are preparing for this National League Division Series matchup when they're waiting on the winner of a wild card series between the Philadelphia Phillies and the St. Louis Cardinals that's happening this weekend. We talked how the Braves got here, what they had to do, and what it took to get that fifth straight National League East title. But Atlanta, in doing this, it's most wins since 2003. That's no small feat. It's first 20-game winner since that same 2003 season and the second most home runs in franchise history. When you talk about the boxes to check that makes this club a complete club and makes this club you know, one of the better that we've seen you know, put on a Braves uniform and take the field in the recent history, this club, not only to your point was it an improbable run, but they put themselves up there with when you think about you know, the Braves, when it was a rite of passage, they were winning the division every single year. They were going to the NLCS a whole bunch of times. They are going to the World Series a whole bunch of times. Well, this Braves team is starting to kind of echo, I feel like, that run of sustained dominance because the Braves just won the World Series last year, as we all know. They're looking to get back there, and they're looking awfully good right now. They are, and, and certainly it all kind of is the undertones there of what they did with contracts this year, obviously, you know, and locking up so much of this core. You know, Riley, uh, Michael Harris II, bringing in, 
uh, you know, uh, bringing in Matt Olson via trade and then locking him up as well. And obviously we don't know what's going to happen with Dansby Swanson, who's a free agent to be. But I think it just all kind of ties in when you talk about sustained dominance. And, and they've been this good this far, so thus far in an opportunity to be this same level of play for a long time to come. So, I mean, obviously, you know, repeating is very, very hard. Nobody's yes. done it since the 2000 uh, Yankees. But I think this team, the way they're built and what they were able to do this season – you got to like their chances. Yeah, you really do. And I don't want to really get into too much of this and give these national pundits all of our airtime, but it's the first time I can remember in a while that somebody has really broken down what the National League looks like and thought, hey, you know who's good is the Atlanta Braves. They could go all the way, get back to the World Series, win the World Series again. I don't know if I should feel really good about that or feel really <laughs> nervous about that because typically it's always like, oh, well, the Braves, you know, they're good. It's good that they're here, but they're going to run into this team or this team. Or if they get past this team, they'll get knocked out by this team or they'll get swept in the World Series. Whatever the case was, it felt like every step along the way in 2021 as the Braves were making their run through October and I would guess that this was a byproduct of being a team that took until August the 6th to get to 500. Maybe nobody really believed in that club, but at the end, it didn't really matter because the Braves were the last team standing. But this is a very different feel this October. You're not sneaking up on anyone when you've won the World Series and then went out and won 101 games. So MLB The Show ran simulations. They did more than 1,000 simmed games to figure out who's going to win the World Series, and they have the Braves running through their bracket. So if you don't want to rely on pundits, Maybe you can rely on, you know, simulated games and computers. Maybe that'll make you feel just a little bit better. I don't know that I feel any kind of way about that. It all starts with the Pocota projections, and pretty much we work backwards from there for the rest of the year. But it is fascinating to see the Braves in this place where, you know, they are the hunted now. They are, I mean, they're hunting a second World Series, don't get me wrong, but they are now a team with a target on his back. They knew they were going to get the best shot of every single team, beginning with the New York Mets and how the Mets put their club together this year. And by the way, I mean, the Mets could go home this weekend. It could be all done for them. They might find a way to advance, and they've got to deal with the Dodgers. But the Mets, you know, they've taken a big step forward, and we know that they're probably not going to be looking to take any steps back in the years to come. So it was at least, at the very least this year, a a reignition for that particular rivalry between these two clubs. Yeah, and certainly we don't know what's going to happen with Jacob deGrom. I think the expectation is that he's going to opt out, but I think you yeah, probably still going to be in a Mets uniform, but I, he's obviously the big variable. And sure, the, and the Braves have their own variable there with Dansby Swanson, but certainly what the way that this Mets team was built and knowing that Scherzer, despite what we we've seen out of him these last couple starts, is still going to be there. And obviously, they mm-hmm. have so many young players as well that this this rivalry is not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, it feels like it's just getting started. And when you look at the Braves and their recipe for success, and the thing that played up so big in that Mets series was the home run ball. We've talked about the Braves hitting the second most home runs in franchise history in a season. They did so 243 times. The only team with more home runs than the Braves in all of Major League Baseball this year, the New York Yankees had 254. They also had somebody break the American League home run record, so it took a very great individual performance to make the Yankees a little bit better slugging team than the Braves have been this year, but that kind of lets you know one through nine how much the Braves lineup can hurt you. These home runs, though, coming in the biggest games of the year, I feel like that bodes well because that's what the Braves used as part of their blueprint for success in 2021 was still relying on the home run ball and hitting it when it counted, getting the big hits that they needed. Yeah, last season, post uh, teams that out-homered their opponents went 20-2 and when you think about the Braves leading the National League in homers, but they also allowed the fourth-fewest homers right. uh, with 148. Prevention. That was third among all postseason teams behind the Astros and Cardinals. So if you can hit home runs, 
runs and not allow home runs. I mean, that's <laughs> obviously that would bode very well for you, but certainly that was a, a big recipe for the Braves, who went 91 and 34 when they lead, hit at least one homer, 59 and 11 when they went deep two or more times. So I think that's going to be another big recipe for success uh, over this next few weeks. So if the Braves win five out of every six or six out of every seven through the postseason, you're telling me that they could be in a pretty good place yeah, yeah, come, yeah. come the end of yep. things. I feel like it could be, even if you're playing as the Braves on MLB The Show. If you out-homer your opponents and don't allow very many home runs, you probably have a recipe for success there. But somebody who started hitting some home runs at a really great time at the end of the season and in those big games, all three games, in fact, against the New York Mets was Matt Olson. Now, Dansby Swanson did that as well. Olsen continued his slugging ways down in Miami. He finished with 34 home runs on the year, team leading 103 runs knocked in, and he got himself a nice little National League Player of the Week honor. And Corey, usually we don't sit here and, and really wax poetic about being Player of the Week. It's a nice deal that you had a couple of good series. But for Matt Olson and what he went through from the last of, of August all the way through the month of September, pretty much until you got to maybe the series before the Mets, this has to feel pretty good for Matt to be swinging the bat and finally have swung his way out of that career-worst slump that he found himself in as the Braves were playing some of their biggest games down the stretch. Yeah, and I think, too, it's big for him because he's not been in the postseason since 2020, that shortened season there when he was, you know, the A's were in before that. You know, he went the couple years before, but he's not been part of a team that's really been built to go on a sustained run. Now he's here in Atlanta. He knows the expectations. I have to think it all weighed on him throughout the season, but yeah. getting hot at the right time is key for him and key for that spot in the order. And when you start to look at medals and season, and, and I know, as you mentioned earlier, you don't want to get caught up in the recency bias of it all, but when he went into September and went into a deep freeze, there were a lot of people that started to wonder, I mean, man, do the Braves have the right guy playing first base, or how could this guy be so bad right now if you wanted to just be objective about only his performance? But there were a lot of questions about it. But as you look at the totality of his season, and obviously he has the opportunity to, if he's swinging anything like he was over the, uh, the last week or 10 days of the regular season, have a very big October. But you look at everything he did, the 40-plus doubles, 30-plus homers, knocked in 100 runs, and obviously coming through in that Mets series didn't hurt anybody's feelings except for the New York Mets. I think that overall the trajectory of Matt Olson's first season is a little bit of a taste of what's to come, but I still think he has a chance to be much better than he was from a consistency standpoint as you move forward in this eight-year deal that he signed. Yeah, I mean, August and September were really the the kind of the low parts, I thought, for him. He was 12% above league average in August, and he hit below league average across September, even yeah. though he ended up ending the month extremely strong, uh, especially with that series against the Mets. But obviously, you know, I mentioned to you before, it, it's, a, it's a year that didn't necessarily play to his resume. The no. batting average is really low. The strikeouts were extremely high, a career high for him. Uh, he was able to draw some walks, though. Yeah, so, helpful. I mean, obviously, you know, he, he's a slugger, but he's not a guy that you see having a 240 average. So I don't think that's indicative of where he's going to be across this this uh, this contract. But uh, certainly the power numbers are uh, something everyone has to be happy yeah, with. And, and just to say it again, if you get hot at the right time, get those big hits and home runs and the big moments, then folks may not be worried about what you hit over the course yeah. of the 162. The biggest games, of course, are still to come. The Braves are tuning up for the NLDS. They'll get started on Tuesday with Game 1. That's October the 11th at Truist Park and an opponent still to be decided this weekend with this wild card matchup. We'll be talking all about what's going on with these wild card series and of course what's going on with the Atlanta Braves. They got some key players dinged up. Will they have them back for the NLDS? We'll talk about it next. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney from the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. To right field. Garcia going back. Look it up. It is. Go! Our Braves 
Braves are in the playoffs, and nobody's got you covered like us. Join us as our Braves insider, Grant McCulley, is live after the last Braves out of every playoff game. Grant will break down the game and get your reaction as well. It's the only place in town where you can react after the game. Absolutely amazing. Finally, know what real good baseball is. Our Braves are looking for a repeat, and nobody's got you covered like us. The game is everywhere. everywhere. Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Now, back to more from the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And we continue on from the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9, The Game from the Kia Studios. It's Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on a Saturday afternoon. Hope you're having a great weekend. It's a wild card weekend, Corey, so we're finding out how exactly this playoff seating thing is going to play out. We haven't really seen this kind of thing before. It's expanded playoffs, which means no more one-game wild cards, but wild card series best two out of three. I feel like... We got to see a lot on Friday. We've gotten to see a little bit more here on Saturday. And, of course, by the time we get to Sunday, we're going to get a clearer picture of what the NLDS, both of those, and what both ALDSs are going to look like as well. Of course, the Braves are preparing for either the Phillies, who won game one of their series, or the Cardinals, who do have home field advantage and now have their backs firmly pressed against the wall after melting down in the ninth inning. The Braves, though, as they make these preparations, are going to be looking for the opportunity to have Spencer Strider back in their rotation. It's suffice to say, one of the most important things and the biggest question right now that is looming over this Atlanta Braves club, Corey, as they prepare for their first-round matchup. I don't really know if there's a bigger question in my mind because we, hearing Alex Anthopoulos in the post-game celebration, he you know said Ozzy Albies is obviously a a longer you know a longer run than than Strider. So you think about two six seven ERA, one eighty average against, finishing only second to Freed uh, in terms of WAR on the team. Yeah. I mean, this is the most important question to me: is is Spencer Strider going to be able to make a start in the LDS? It definitely is. And Alex Anthopoulos joined Dukes and Bell right here on Sports Radio ninety two nine. The game just after the season ended to talk a little bit about both of those guys, but in particular where Spencer Strider is. This, of course, was Wednesday, so October the fifth. Alex Anthopoulos gave an update on where Spencer Strider was at that point and what they need to see in the next few days leading up to the NLDS. He's doing much better. He's going to throw to 90 feet here. If, assuming he continues to pass that test, then he'll progress to a bullpen. And you know he feels optimistic, and our medical staff does too. He's supposed to pass some of these tests to make sure he doesn't feel anything, but that he could be ready to pitch at some point during the DS. So the good news is we've got time, and we'll know that much more before we have to submit the roster. So you know, these next four days are going to be huge for them and for us to make a decision. But, you know, we're optimistic. And I think they should be optimistic just based on A, number one, how did Spencer Strider feel? He did not have any of that same discomfort that he experienced when he tried to throw a week and a half ago. So this is progress. The Braves gave him a little bit more time between having him tested out, and essentially now they're looking at the different hurdles that he needs to clear as Alex Anthopoulos, again, from Dukes and Bell this week. If you did not catch that, make sure you find the Odyssey app and go over and check out all the great stuff that uh, Dukes and Bell have had this week. They've, we've had a lot of great Braves guests, and Alex Anthopoulos, of course, at or near the top of that list for obvious reasons. And with info like that, it helps us get a little bit clearer picture for what this NLDS could look like. But it's the biggest decision that the Braves have to make. He's got to throw from 90 feet, as we just heard. Then you've got to get him on a mound and see how he feels after that. I would imagine, Corey, that as we're leading up to this and we're sitting here in the the prime part of the weekend, things are going to have to happen this weekend to let you know in advance of Monday or Tuesday when they have to put in their postseason roster and make this decision about Spencer Strider's availability. Yeah, and that's why 
getting this rest was so key, right? I mean, think about if they were in the Mets' shoes right now and they were in the midst of, of playing in a wild card series, and then you're trying to figure out, you know, if you're going to have Strider for the next round. Obviously, you know, he would not be available if they were playing in this round right now. And there's just so many dominoes off this, right? Because you're going to probably you're going to need four starters uh, for the LDS. So. If you don't have him, then you're looking towards Bryce Elder. You're looking potentially towards Jake Odorizzi. So it's just, this is the most important piece. Is is he going to be available? Because if not, I think it really changes the complexity of what the Braves pitching staff looks like in the LDS. It definitely does. And we're wondering how he's going to respond to the test that he's going to have to go through and how his oblique is going to feel once he does get those other throwing sessions in. But not only are we talking about this injury, Corey, but we're also talking about a three-plus-week layoff since the last time that he started a Major League Baseball game. I'm not saying that it can't be done or anything of that nature, but that just has to be one of the many variables that you are th- at least thinking about is that it has been a little bit of a time, an awkward time to have a layoff of that long and then come back and be thrown into the biggest game under the brightest lights that you can find in October. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, that's going to be a question that the whole team's going to have to answer in terms of you know getting five days layoff when by the time they actually do take the field again on October 11th. So everyone's going to have a little bit of that, but it's obviously going to be amplified here with Strider. Um, I mean, obliques too—they're such a, a tricky thing, right? Yeah. And they're so easy to reaggravate again. So I think that's why it's so crucial for him to figure out what it feels like on the mound because if he gets into the game and you're out there and you need to get him, you know, six, seven innings, what's that twisting and that turning going to be like mm-hmm. on an aggravated muscle? So, uh, I mean, again, I hate to just keep using the term biggest question, but to me this is this, – this is, I mean, uh, I just don't know if there's a bigger thing hanging over this team is whether or not you're going to potentially be able to put him out there in game two of the of this series. Yeah, and you've already worried or worried or wondered, or maybe both, about Ozzie Albies and his lack of availability here early in the postseason. You hope to have him back at some point. And we'll talk a little bit more about Ozzie as we continue here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. But specifically for Spencer Strider, I feel like this was one of those where you had kind of gotten used to life without Ozzie Albies as not great as that sounds because he missed 81 games before he came back and then suffered that ill-timed broken finger that now has him trying to work his way back. And this is, I feel like, you know, biggest question might be the best way to put it, but the Braves rotation is going to have to, you know, figure out ways to do the things that it did really down the stretch without Spencer Strider. I mean, they swept the Mets in a series without utilizing Spencer. It took a great amount of work, though, from the Atlanta bullpen, and that's a group I do want to talk about here because the incredible things that they did in the Mets series across 12 and two-thirds innings of one-run ball in order to help the Braves sweep that three-game set It looks like this is a group, Corey, that has come together. I mean, they've been a strength for this club all year long, whether or not there have been different meltdowns and games that have gotten away from them. As we talked about last week, there is not a perfect bullpen out there. You are going to lose a few games in relief or late or whatever, what have you, or for different reasons throughout the course of a season. But the Braves have a top-five bullpen in Major League Baseball, and it looks like it is coming together with the right components at the right time for the Braves' 2022 bullpen to do a little bit of what the 2021 night shift was doing for him through the postseason last year. Yeah, that collective of Luke Jackson, Tyler Matzik, A.J. Mentor, Will Smith last year, 2280 ERA over 47 in the third innings. Obviously, Matzik and Mentor are the only ones back from there. Matzik's not been uh, the same guy. His no. ERA's more than doubled this year. But think about this this current crew, right? They finished tied for second overall with a 7-6 war, third in strikeouts per nine, fourth in ERA. They have five relievers in the top 16 in the league in war in Mentor, Rossiel Iglesias, Colin McHugh, Kenley Jansen, and rookie Dylan Lee. So yeah. last year they had two guys in the top 20. I'm not saying that that 
is a is a forecast for continued dominance, and it's going to look the exact same. But it ain't bad. But, but this is a deeper crew than the one that they had last year that was so dominant when it got to October. Yeah, and when we look at wins above replacement, clearly it gives you an idea. I mean, you want as many guys on that leaderboard as you can possibly get because that means you have a lot of awfully good baseball players. And even if that's not your metric of choice, or you like to just kind of you know see the guys that come up in the big moments, I think that if you watch that Mets series, you got a pretty good indication of what this club can do. And I think you saw something that you really needed to see from Kenley Jansen, who came in and saved all three games of that series. Then he turned around in that clinching game against the Marlins and almost threw an immaculate inning to close that thing out. But whatever Kenley has done, whatever he has found since, you know, kind of wandering through the wilderness a little bit in August and early September, the Braves have to be happy to see it because I still feel like he is the key. He's a linchpin to this bullpen because it allows you to have all those other pieces lined up and not move anybody else's role around if you feel confident that he can handle those last three outs. And that's something he's done quite a bit over the last decade. Yeah, and he did go from a two five zero fit before the All-Star break to four ten after. He blew seven saves, three over the last 15 uh, opportunities. But he's still at the NL with, with 41 in total. And the one the one thing I, I think is very different from this group than a year before is obviously A.J. Minter had, has closing experience, but the fact that you have Rocio Iglesias, mm-hmm. who was the NL's best reliever after the trade deadline, a two oh five weighted on base average, .34 ERA and 26 yeah, in the he third He allowed innings. one run since he came over. So if if you get to a situation where you have similar run from Jansen, you've got another guy that you can fall back on that, you know, in a lot of regards is just as good as Kenley Jansen. So I think that's why this group is so interesting because they are so deep and you have a, a basically a 1B in terms of closer opportunities there with uh, Iglesias. Yeah, it's a huge opportunity to match up as you get to Kenley Jansen as well because you have the right-handed weapon in Rysel Iglesias, which I did feel like this bullpen was missing at the trade deadline, and Alex Antopoulos went out and took care of that. A.J. Minter, I would argue, has been the Braves' best reliever bell-to-bell all season long. He put together an incredible season, and as a lefty matchup and a lefty weapon that you need, I know Tyler Matzik's had some trouble this year, you know, could not find the same velocity that he had a year ago. So, you know, Minter's continuation of his success was critical to this Braves' bullpen having the mix that it needed. And if you didn't have Tyler Matzik for long portions of this year, Dylan Lee really stepped into an important role for the Braves. No, he's not throwing in the 8th and ninth innings, 7th, 8th and ninth innings. A lot of times are already spoken for, but he has come in and gotten some big outs for the Braves and helped keep some of those other guys fresh and available for the outings in which you need it because you can't go through 162 games trying to manage your bullpen like it's the playoffs. You will burn all of those guys out by June the 1st, and that's simply not going to play because you have 100-and-something games left after that, and then the important ones. So Dylan Lee, Colin McHugh, some of the other relievers that the Braves have had step in and step up has been critical to their success this year. And as you pointed out, with the blimps above replacement and the overall performance and dominance of this Braves bullpen, it is a much deeper group, I think, than we saw even a year ago. Yeah, I think Lee's kind of got lost in the shuffle here when we talk about Spencer Strider and Michael Harris II. Yeah, the rookies that have made the impact on this team, Elder Muller. Um, He's been fantastic, a 2-1-3 ERA. And then on the topic of Minter, a 190 weighted on base average against left-handers this year, 132 average. I mean, he he was just absolutely dominant. You think about, you know, not to look ahead, but you think about the Dodgers and those bats that they have. When you think about some key lefties within that lineup, what you could potentially have with Minter, uh, I mean, these numbers from him have been fantastic this year. And let people know, just so that they understand, I know that you and I have the vernacular down, but when you talk about a stat like that, that 190 weighted on base average, 
when you look at the average reliever or you just want to look at how above average A.J. Minter has been, what does that stat tell us the most about A.J. Minter's dominant performance this year? Well, I mean, it's, you know, not all hits are created equal, right? I mean, batting average assumes that they are, but, you know, when you take an on-base percentage and you're, you're able to kind of break that down uh, with the slugging and all that stuff, and, and basically it's, you know, you're you're taking away uh, the other variables and you're really putting it on the pitcher, and I think that's what you're able to get there is, is taking different aspects of hitting into one metric, so weighing each of them in proportion to get – you know, an actual run value, which is what you're weighting this against. So yeah. that's why it's a little bit different than what you would think about a normal batting average against, mm-hmm. you know, ERA, all those things. It's just more of a of a high-level uh, look at that as well. Yeah, it's a way to take a lot of things in and, and kind of aggregate a, a, a number of different performance factors, and that obviously is important, and that's the kind of stuff you can find here on From the Diamond. I just want people that just tune in and they're like, well, what exactly does that tell me? I mean, yeah. it sounds great. But what does it mean? I think there's still a segment of the fan that just likes to know exactly how great somebody is because we're going to throw an awful lot of stats at you, and there are a lot of great stats to attach to some of these arms in the bullpen. Now let's talk a little bit about somebody who is not in the Atlanta bullpen, somebody that you're going to be counting on, and somebody that we found out last week is going to be around for another season, and that's Charlie Morton who signed a new $20 million one-year contract. It's basically the Braves exercising the option, but they also added another option for $20 million for the 2024 season, but Let's talk about Charlie Morton's 2022 postseason role, his importance to this rotation, because he has to find a way, Corey, to recapture the October magic after a really rough stretch over the final seven starts for him. And how rough was it? A 565 ERA, 10 home runs allowed in those seven starts, and a career worst, Corey, this year, 28 homers over the course of his 30 starts, and that was nearly double his home run rate from a year ago. Yeah, a 6.53 ERA over his last five outings. So you mentioned 28 home runs on the season, which is 12 more than last year. He also allowed 63 walks, which was one away from the most he'd given up since 2011. He wow. hit 18 batters, which was the second most in his career. Most in the so league. that's a, a whole lot of extra base uh, traffic on the base pass that was his alone to control. So I think that's why it's such an interesting look at you know, how do you kind of work him in? Because if you had had Spencer Strider, available. I don't know that you're thinking of Morton being a lock to get a start uh, in a three-game wildcard series if the Braves have been in that situation. Yeah, and I think that that's something that we had talked a little bit about and debated what would that three-game wildcard rotation look like. And I was along the lines of saying, hey, it should be Max Reed, Spencer Strider, and Kyle Wright, if you're asking me. But I felt like if Charlie Morton had a good September, he could pitch his way into that. But he had such a an up-and-down year and a really down September that it kind of makes you wonder. The strikeouts were still there those last seven starts, 41 of those in those 36 and two-thirds innings. And, you know, you just kind of hope that he's more swing and miss than more of the swings that some of the batters have put on him in hitting a very inordinate amount of home runs by anybody's standards, but especially somebody like Charlie, who had done such a great job of keeping the ball in the park year over year. Well, we got a lot more to get to here on From the Diamond as we continue getting you ready for the National League Division Series. The Braves are still awaiting their opponent, but we don't have to wait to talk to you about all the important stories and the big headlines heading into that series. We will continue and give you an update on Ozzie Albies and what his status is for the Braves' postseason run. We'll do it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. to Graham McCauley for more from the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And we continue on from the Diamond on this fine Saturday from the Kia Studios. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you as we get set for the Braves' NLDS matchup. It'll either be the Phillies who took game one of their wild card and 
very dramatic fashion, or the St. Louis Cardinals, who do have the home field advantage, but it may not feel like much of one now that they have to win back-to-back games against Philadelphia should they be able to advance. We'll see how that all plays out, of course, and And we'll get you set for what's going on with the Braves regardless of that. And one of the big stories outside of the health of Spencer Strider was, of course, the curiosity and the hope that you're going to get Ozzie Albies back in the mix as well. Uh, Dukes and Bell had Alex Anthopoulos on this past week to talk about both the uh, condition of Spencer Strider and where he finds himself in the Braves' rotational plans, but also the possibility of having Ozzie Albies back in the mix and what that's going to look like this October. Here's what AA had to say. Yeah, I think the visual round will be stretch he just hasn't been hitting or doing anything i just don't see it you know so i think hopefully if we can advance i would think the cs will be in play but obviously we got to get there but the good news is that if we can advance at some point he should factor for us and obviously it'd be tremendous to get a guy like that back now here's the understanding about ozzy albee's injury that i think everybody's come to is that ill-timed and you cannot speed up the timetable for him either i mean ozzy had to get a cast put on He got a smaller cast on uh, around the time that the Braves went to visit the White House. And at that point, he started taking some ground balls. But Alex also pointed out that he has not been hitting yet and hasn't been able to go through some of the other things, that boxes that you need to check if you're going to be on a postseason roster and starting postseason games for any club. So it looks like NLCS, should the Braves advance, would be the soonest that you'd see Ozzy Albies. But I don't know that you can take really anything for, for absolute certain because this is a very uncertain time and an uncertain injury for Ozzy Albies. Yes, yeah, so for the second straight postseason, the Braves are going to have an all-star cheerleader uh, in their clubhouse, at yeah. least to start things off. You think about Ronald Acuna Jr. being in this situation last year. But, uh, yeah, he, he's been has that slimmer cast on. We've seen him out there doing field work, but he's not started hitting yet, and I think that's the biggest thing, too. And, obviously, he wasn't having the kind of season that we've expected from him. Career right. lows and weight run grade of plus, average. Uh, you know, Obviously, they're hoping, as Anthopoulos mentioned, to get him back for the next round. But I really do wonder, what does that mean for the production at second base? Because you know, Vaughn Grissom cooled off. Orlando Arcia appeared in each of the last 10 games and had a 794 OPS. But they were 15th in weight run grade of plus in the last month of the season at second base. I, so I, I wonder, what is that production going to be like? Because, you know, down, down Ozzy, even if it was down an Ozzy that wasn't having what we've come to expect from him, it's still a, a there's a chasm between the, him and what they were potentially getting or getting, you know, down the stretch here from Grissom and Arcia. And there's a difference between having Vaughn Grissom, who is playing out of position at second base. He's done a very admirable job of filling in. And when he was hitting, of course, that adds a different dimension to his yep. game. But once that hitting cooled off, you know, and not that Vaughn was out there making a bunch of errors or miscues that cost the Braves a bunch of baseball games, for, you know, furthest thing from that. But it, with the hitting not being there, the Braves once again turned to find some kind of offensive spark there, and Orlando Arcia was able to give that to him. I mean, he absolutely torched the Washington Nationals this year, started hitting a couple of home runs, picking up some extra base hits, and doing some things to help the Braves win. And I feel like at that point, Corey, if you're Brian Snitker or really any manager, when you're at the time where – you know, every win's important and every bit of offense you can find, you're going to take it. You're going to ride the hot hand. So I kind of feel like as you do head into the NLDS, at least for the time being, you're more or less looking, I feel like, for this to be the second base position to be manned by Orlando Arcia and then Vaughn Grissom in that order. Yeah, uh, Grissom hit 200 with a 538 OPS and one extra base hit over his last 12 games. I mean, he also struggled against both of the potential opponents. He hit 077 against the Cardinals, 167 against the Phillies, and obviously Arcia has just been a little bit more steady uh, since he's been uh, back from the injury. Uh, he hit 9% above league average over the last month after that 40-game absence with a hamstring injury. So yeah. uh, he, you know, he's going to be the guy there, I think, uh, until potentially Ozzy comes back if they make it to the LC. 
LCS. And I don't want people to think this is an indication of, well, now this shines off Von Grissom no. and the Braves no longer see a lot of his future as, you know, being as bright as it was a month ago. Uh, also, furthest thing from the truth. But you're going to have guys, I think, at different parts of the season that come up and, and they carry you for a certain amount of time. And then, and because you're not going to have all nine positions that you got going on there, including the the DH as far as offense is concerned, you're not going to have all those guys going at the same rate at the same time, all hot and all hitting. If you did, it'd be pretty amazing. And I feel like the Braves would have one of the best offenses in all of baseball. And I already feel like they do, but I think you have to take a little bit more offense at this time because defensively, I don't feel like there's much of a difference between Grissom and Arcia, Arcia and Grissom. I just feel like it's kind of the same. Arcia has got the better arm clearly, but other than that, I feel like you do just have to kind of give yourself the opportunity to get all the offense you can uh, after this position or at that position. Now, after that, and when it comes to kind of making some choices on the roster, I don't feel like the Braves are facing really any, I don't know, overly interesting and intriguing decisions where they have three or four different guys that they're going to have to decide, hey, what do we want to do with them? And then a couple or three of them are going to be out, and you're going to kind of wonder why. There really don't seem to be uh, doesn't seem to be a lot of intrigue with the roster building for the NLDS. And I know the postseason roster is going to come out at the start of the week, but I think one question that you could ask yourself for the division series, and it may all hinge on what the availability of Spencer Strider is. You know, would you see Bryce Elder or Jake Odorizzi get the opportunity to be kind of part of that bullpen as that long reliever, just in case you need somebody like that? Because over the course of a five-game series. It makes a lot more sense than it would over the course of a three-game wildcard series. Yeah, and I think I'd lean more towards Elder. I mean, I think just that there's been so much shakiness from Odorizzi. He had a nice little run after that start against the Mets that had the rain delay, and he goes in and reworks his mechanics a little bit. But then he went off the rails again, uh, you know, late in the season. And I know that Lee's last uh, timeout wasn't obviously spectacular either. You know, he ends up, you know, uh, having some issues uh, in his last— You're talking uh, about Elder? uh, Yeah, his Elder's last start having some issues. But, I mean, I I think I would lean that that direction if we're talking about which one of those two guys, and and I think that may ultimately leave Odorizzi. Or is he in the dark in terms of a roster spot? It could. I would say, and again, we're dealing with the smallest of sample sizes for both of these guys because we're talking about a handful of starts for Elder, though they were very consistent starts, including a complete game shutout, a career-high 10 strikeouts, and another start. But a lot of this was done against the Marlins and the Nationals. Yeah. Now, but I'll also say, Jake Odorizzi went out and pitched great in the clinching game against the Miami Marlins. So what can you really take from that? I don't know, but I felt like there was a little bit of a redemption arc there, at least for Odorisi, where he knew, and trust me, these players know when their performance has not been up to the standard that they set, let alone what people in the stands are paying to see. Guys are very well aware of that, and I think for Odorizzi, it had to feel extra sweet to be out there and have your best start in a Braves uniform on a day that the club was able to win the National League East. Now, is that enough to kind of erase some of the other performance and, and again, kind of fall under that, hey, who was hot for me lately kind of deal? I don't know. Is the veteran aspect of that more to the point something that you might lean on? Because Jake Odorizzi has pitched in the postseason and has been around for a while. Has he looked great at times in a Braves uniform? Yes. Has he looked bad at times in a Braves uniform? Well, the answer to that is also yes. Yeah, and he, I mean, he did pitch out of the bullpen for the Astros last year. Um, yeah, we saw him. Yeah, I mean, he obviously pitched against the Braves, uh, two and a third innings against them. He pitched in the LCS before that against the Red Sox. So you've got a guy that you know has done it. And what version of Elder you're going to get? Because obviously, as you mentioned there, the work for him has has come largely, you know, against bottom feeding offenses. I mean, that run that we really talked about being good for him was against Miami, Miami, Washington, Washington, and Miami. Those were the the last five starts for him. How can you kind of correlate that to what you know you saw earlier from the season in him? 
Um, didn't have the best of, of uh, starts there, uh, opportunities against the Mets back in August when no. he saw an actual good offense. So I would not be surprised to see them lean Odorizzi, but I think if I'm making that decision, I like the potential of what Elder could bring you because we've seen him do it more so than we have Odorizzi. It's also worth thinking about this. The start against the Cardinals for Jake Odorizzi was one where he was rolling along pretty well until the third time through the offense, but I think he only allowed a couple of runs in that one. Whereas the last time he saw the Philadelphia Phillies involved eight earned runs being hung on him at Citizens Bank Park. So when you're thinking about which opponent you're going to face, I think you have to kind of look at the head-to-head battles and particularly the recency of that. You give up eight earnings to anybody in one start, it's going to blow up your numbers against them all season long. And that's just kind of the way that that is. And I'm not saying that Bryce Elder has no shot of being in this. I just feel like there is some value in the in the veteran, but I think there's also a degree of – this front office takes all of the information that it can to make these kind of decisions. So they're going to be factoring in these kinds of things and more to figure out who might be the best. And I'll also say, as, as kind of an obvious caveat to all of this, you'd love not to see your long reliever throw in any game in the playoffs because it would mean that your starter's done his job and your bullpen has not been overly taxed to where a long reliever had to come in and do all of that. But this is kind of like the fire extinguisher. You want to have one around just in case one breaks out so that you're able to handle that uh, appropriately if that situation comes up. But as far as the other choices and, and things that the Braves have for roster spots in the NLDS and beyond, you have a lot of outfielders, Corey, that I'm looking at and trying to kind of think along with the team how exactly they want to go. I've just talked about the value of having some offense as particularly off your bench or the option that you have, depending on how you want to make your starting lineup from a platoon situation. But you know your center fielders, Michael Harris the second. You know your right fielders, Ronald Acuna Jr. In the left field, by and large, down the stretch, it was mostly Robbie Grossman and Eddie Rosario with a splash of Marcelo Zuna. We know Guillermo Heredia is basically the fifth or sixth outfielder as it was, but he offers defense and he offers some speed off the bench if you need that as well. I feel like Grossman and Rosario are probably as close to a lock as you can possibly get, but I feel like there is a little bit of a decision to be made between the offense of Marcelo Zuna and the defense and versatility and the the X factor that the biggest hype man in the business brings to your dugout, though I have a feeling he'd be there anyway. Yeah, and Ozuna, I mean, he had a pretty solid September. He hit 321, 368, 585, three homers, a 164 way to run credit plus, but it was in just 16 games. Um but he started the final two games of the Mets series. I, I, so you're taking the most important series of the year, you know, and, and he's getting the time at DH. And he had a big so double in he, one of those games. He did. Too. So maybe he earned enough, uh, enough of a look and, and you know enough uh, positives down the stretch that you can keep him around. And I just don't know outside of a pinch uh, running option and maybe late defensive replacement. What are you really getting from Heredia that you say that outweighs? And certainly the clubhouse you know, what he means to that clubhouse. Yeah. But I just think if it's about depth and it's about, you know, what you can provide, I think Ozuna wins out. And keeping in mind, I mean, they're going to have a little taxi squad of players that's going to be available. So if Guillermo Heredia was not on the roster, I mean, he's going to be around. You're going to see those yep. little swords being swung around. Hopefully if the Braves offense is rolling and Guillermo Heredia is the guy that kind of gets that energy going. And I'm not just going to suggest to you that just because he's of a particular clubhouse value that he should just make the club as a default because you need to put the best team you can out there. But I do feel like that this club has shown at times and has leaned on at times having some different contributors to the chemistry to be around. They were going through kind of a little bit of a lull, and then they decided they go ahead and travel Luke Jackson for a series, if I recall, earlier in the season, just to kind of have somebody around that could keep that bullpen group loose because they went through some ups and downs this year, most certainly with some different injuries and uh, some games that got away from them and all that kind of stuff. But right around the time that it seemed like it was getting a little bit dark, 
you know, Rysel Iglesias emerged and walked through that door, as the old saying goes, and was able to really help this group from a performance standpoint as well. It'll be interesting to see exactly how they decide to maybe look at that chemistry level and and how they mix all of that and what it looks like in terms of this postseason roster. Yeah, and, and if you're taking into a factor, you know, okay, who can you potentially bring in for a pinch in, a pinch running situation late? If you've got Vaughn Grissom and you've got Orlando Arcia, I think you've got an option there too as well. So uh, I, I can just go down a Grissom list of— maybe, Arcia is I, I just slow. think you can go down, though, a list, of, a list of variables with Heredia where it's like, okay, but you can get that in another guy. So I, I think ultimately he may end up missing out just because I think there's so much, and you mentioned him— traveling along with the team as well, so the, the, the swords will you'll, you'll see plenty of foam swords. Yeah, I mean, those things will travel, but I don't know. I just kind of have this feeling like, you know, he's meant an awful lot to this team, and it would be strange to see him not around this club when they get to the biggest stage in which he has been a contributor before yeah. to the 2021 yep. World Series team. So just something to think about. That'll wrap things up as far as the first hour and all of the Braves talk that we've had for you, though we've got a lot more coming at hour number two on From the Diamond. When we come back, we're going to take a look at these National League Wild Card Series. What are the implications for the Cardinals and Phillies? Well, that's who's going to face the Braves, but what's going on with the New York Mets and San Diego Padres? We'll go through that as well. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney, From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Graham McCulley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome into Hour 2 of From the Diamond. Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We're live from the Kia Studios. Hope you've been enjoying this show. As always, remember, you can find From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. Also on the Odyssey app. You can listen there for free, and we hope that you will. The podcast's also free, so check that out. Again, wherever you get your podcast, just search for From the Diamond. Now, we've talked a lot about the Braves and, of course, the implications that we are waiting on. Uh, for this wild card round is not what the Braves are doing. Thankfully, they're kind of resting up, recharging, and hopefully getting healthy to begin the National League Division Series on Tuesday, October the 11th. But, Corey, we do not yet know who the opponent is going to be. So since Teddy Long is not going to come you know, trotting out here to set up this match for us, let's talk about who it could be. Uh, the Cardinals and the Phillies are battling this thing out. But before we really get into kind of the, the nitty-gritty of it, you know, I have enjoyed this weekend knowing that these are wild card series more than wild card games. I've never really made that a secret. I was not a big fan of the what I feel is the manufactured drama of the one game wild card. I know there have been some years where game 163 happens and then the one game wild card happens and all of that, but I just feel like this is a more accurate representation of what baseball is. It's a game of series. Yeah, I like it. I mean, again, I mentioned to you earlier, it felt like Friday was like the NCAA tournament, just yeah. like the the whole day. And it's like you go through the highs of of one entire game, and you're like, oh, man, I got to go do this again. And I think to be able to do it multiple days is like it's going to be emotionally draining. I mean, I couldn't imagine if these last two days would have been elimination games, but um, certainly tomorrow could be, and we could see a number of them. But uh, it's it's been a lot of fun. I, I really like this concept. I like this format. And uh, the Braves are liking it, too, because they get to watch somebody else have to suffer through it. Yeah, and, and I think that and, and we'll always watch someone else's suffering over our own. I think that's a universal <laughs> thing for most sports fans. So I won't, I'll won't. i kind of stop there and not expand it out to all of life. But as you look at what Major League Baseball wanted from this wild card round, I think that in the first day, day and a half thus far, and we're doing this show on a Saturday afternoon, if you end up listening to the podcast after the fact, then we don't have all of the results in front of us for how Saturday's games are going to play out. But just through that first night, it was incredible that first day. I mean, you had four games that were all, I think, equally 
uh, unique and satisfying depending on you know whose fan base you were in. But you got a little bit of everything because you did get some really great starting pitching, but you also got some really crazy comebacks and some big offense in some of these games and some really surprising moments and point our attention towards the series that means the most for the Braves, and that's the Phillies coming back to beat the Cardinals in game one of that wild card battle at Bush Stadium. They, there was one out in the ninth. They were down 2 nothing. There was nobody on. The next thing you know, the Phillies turn around and win that game by scoring six times in the top of the ninth inning down to their final two outs and in danger of going down one game to none against the the St. Louis Cardinals' October juggernaut that once it gets going, you better not be in its way. So the Cardinals were 93-0 and in the postseason all-time, entering the ninth inning with at least a two-run lead. Now they're 93-1. and It's a bonkers stat. I mean, it's that's unbelievable, right? You know, Ryan Helsley, their all-star closer, you know, you think this guy's just going to come in and shut it down. That doesn't happen. He ends up, you know, hitting uh, Alec Baum with the bases loaded, 100.8-mile-an-hour 100, 100. fastball, <laughs> and his day is then done, and the wheels just completely fell off for the Cardinals. You know, I have never seen anyone that excited to be plunked by a 101-mile-an-hour fastball, but when Baum popped up and was yeah. fist pumping, I was like, all right, we have got ourselves just some kind of you know, strange, bizarro world of a game here. But I feel like the, the other thing about this is, you know, and everybody looks at it like, well, these closers, you know, they only throw the ninth, they're only in charge of three outs, and why can't they throw more innings? And some of them can, and some of them do, but just not as often anymore. But when uh, Ali Marmol went to Helsley with two outs, or excuse me, to get two outs in the eighth inning for a five-out save ultimately by the time he'd finished up the ninth, I didn't feel like it was necessarily a bridge too far, but that's certainly, Corey, a calculated risk that they took, and that risk did not pay off because even though he got the first out of the ninth, things started to fall apart for him, and I was a little bit surprised that the Cardinals didn't have at least somebody ready just in case there was any little bit of ninth inning trouble, any hint of something, not what we saw happen, but anything close to it, I'm just surprised. Yeah, and especially, too, with you know word coming out that Helsley had initially jammed his finger in the final regular season appearance, so they knew that there was something already he was kind of yeah. dealing with. So the second you see any resemblance of trouble, why you wouldn't, one, why you would ask him to do so much, and then two, right. why you wouldn't automatically have somebody else and be like, okay, just be ready just in case things do get a little dicey for him. And this guy was almost unhittable down the stretch. I mean, that's how you earn a closer's job. He wasn't the closer at the start of the year. I mean, it took the Cardinals quite a while, I think, to kind of figure out how they wanted to align their bullpen. It, it took them quite a while, apparently, to determine that Jordan Hicks should be in the bullpen, which I don't think that a lot of other talent evaluators would have taken that long to make that <laughs> assumption, but be that as it may, they figured it out. They made it work, and you know, they've got a great relief core, and I, I don't know, a five-out save just seemed like an awful lot to ask of Helsley in the first of those two games, but maybe I'm just a little bit you know, old-fashioned in looking at the way that you could kind of match up these relievers, but if you do have to ask for five outs from your closer, you better have a pretty good alternative waiting just in case things go sideways. And this is the time of year where, to point it back towards the things we've talked about that are such a strength for the Braves, I don't think they're going to be in too many different situations where you're going to be asking for five and six out saves. Yeah, I don't think that's happening. And for the Cardinals, you know, at least they still have Jordan Hicks. They still have Giovanni Gallegos, who they'll be able to go to in a, in a save situation right. potentially uh, tonight because they don't, Helsley's not going to be available. He had the MRI, which was, which was negative, And, um, you know, obviously he's not going to be available. So uh, I didn't, you know, I, when you and I kind of set this series up, I told you I, I thought the Phillies, because of their starting pitching, you know, we talked about the formula for the Braves before, right? It's it's home runs, it's it's the ability to limit home runs. The Phillies have done those two things pretty well too. So I I wouldn't be surprised if they ultimately walk through this thing. 
No, I think that they could. And, you know, the interesting thing about this matchup was the last time that the Phillies were in the postseason, they were facing the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals, I believe, shut them out the final couple of games. The last win that the Philadelphia Phillies had in October came on the third in 2011, and Cole Hamels was the winning pitcher. So it just lets you know how long ago it's been. A, Cole Hamels was still on the Phillies. I mean, Cole Hamels hasn't thrown a, a pitch in a big league game since he was briefly a Brave in 2020, but it had been a long time since they had scored a run in the postseason, let alone six with one out in the ninth inning. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's you know they've been waiting a long time for this, and uh, they're I mean I, I love that rotation. I mean, I think you know you get Aaron Nola with an opportunity to close things out uh, opposite Miles Michaelis. Um, they've been a, had a really strong staff. Zach Wheeler looked fantastic, six and a third shutout innings in his first postseason start. So I mean, this is a team where you rely on you know guys like Kyle Schwarber and you know four guys that had you know almost twenty home runs. When you think about Bryce Harper finishing too short, I think they're a team that could you know is is built for this in, in a lot of ways at the Braves are. Yeah, and they needed Bryce Harper back to I feel like make this run. The Phillies though they didn't necessarily just get hot because he came back in. They had gotten yeah. hot before that and kind of it stumbled a little bit a couple of times really in September and almost lost that wild card spot to the Milwaukee Brewers, but they were able to hang on to it and end their postseason drought that had gone on for uh, just over a decade, 11 years again, since they had picked up a win in October. But, you know, that postseason drought, not the longest of clubs that go to the postseason here this year because the Seattle Mariners had one about twice as long. And we'll talk about the Mariners a little bit more coming up. But also happening in the National League wild card picture and. This is, I feel like, the one that may have the most eyeballs from the Braves side. Even though you're waiting on the Phillies and the Cardinals to decide who you're going to play if you're the Atlanta Braves and the Braves fans, what are the Mets doing hosting the Padres? How's that series going? Well, an incredible power display was put on by San Diego to the tune of four home runs off Max Scherzer. This Mets rotation of Scherzer and DeGrom, DeGrom and Scherzer, throw Chris Bassett in there because he's been a big producer for them as well, but it was supposed to be kind of the driving force of their, uh, not only their 2022 regular season, but once they got to the playoffs, to be able to throw those two aces out there, their first ace did not draw a good hand against the San Diego Padres. And it wasn't just the usual suspects beating up on Scherzer either. It was Trent Grisham, Jerickson, Profar. I mean, these are not the slugging Padres that you're thinking about, but Scherzer just did not have the start the Mets needed, and their offense didn't show up either. You and I talked a ton over the summer about, okay, well, when the Mets have Scherzer and DeGrom back, when the Mets have Scherzer and DeGrom back, that's when we're going to know what they're really about. They've got them, and it's not been good. I mean, this was the first time in Scherzer's career they allowed more than six runs in a postseason contest. And then you say Jacob DeGrom, he's not won a start since September 7th against the Pirates. Since then, he's allowed 14 earned runs on 20 hits, four walks, and six home runs. That's a 6-0 ERA through 21 innings pitched. And they both really struggled against the Braves in a series that was really, you know, the the deciding factor in who was getting that rest and who was having to play in the wild card round. It's crazy to see that, and it was, what, seven earned runs allowed by Max Scherzer in this start. He had not allowed more than four earned runs in a start for the Mets all season long. I think you'd have to track back quite a ways through his game logs to find the last time he gave up seven runs. And to find him giving up four home runs, I mean, Good luck. I'm sure somebody's looked it up, but I can't think of a Max Scherzer start that went as poorly as the one that went in Game 1 at City Field, and it puts the Mets behind the eight ball as well because this Padres club now, you know, you Darvish threw a great game. They got Blake Snell, who's also turned it on in the second half. He was very good against the Mets. 
And, and the Padres were a big problem for the Mets throughout the course of the season as well. Head-to-head, this was not really a favorable matchup for New York. And, again, I know maybe they didn't have Scherzer here. Maybe they didn't have DeGrom there. Maybe for a while they didn't have both of them. But this is certainly a test for this Mets club to not just have to win once to keep their season alive, but have to win twice if they want to advance after winning 101 games and being in first place in the NL East for 175 of the 183 days. Yeah, so you, I mean, they, they've set everything up for the Braves series to have their three best guys go. And you think, okay, well, they fall to the wild card. They're going to have those exact same three guys, Scherzer, DeGrom, and Bassett all lined up. They're going to get through this thing. And then the Padres, who outscored them 36-23 to 23 during the regular season, won four of the six games that they had played, has them on the brink of elimination with the ball in Jacob DeGrom's hands. They do, and the Padres went out and made some serious moves at the trade deadline. We talked about it a lot here on From the Diamond. No bigger trade in the last, I don't know, five, ten years, maybe longer. I mean, the, this Juan Soto deal was a huge deal to acquire a player of that caliber and have him around for a couple of years. The Padres, they really went all in to get into October with all the weapons they needed, but it wasn't Juan Soto getting the big hit to start him off. It was the guy that came over from the Nationals in that trade alongside him in Josh Bell, who had really not hit his former teammate Max Scherzer very well when they were opponents when Bell was spending his time with the Pittsburgh Pirates. But from that opening salvo by the Padres, it just felt like this night was going to be an uphill climb for Max Scherzer and obviously for the Mets, who got some runners on but never were able to get the big hit. And they're an offense that, I don't know, I feel like once you get into October, power is really not their game outside of maybe Pete Alonso. And I think it's important to note that while the Padres did win four of the six meetings that they had in the regular season, they hadn't seen each other since July 24th. So they never saw this version of the Padres that had no, Josh Bell, right. that had Juan Soto. So those are obviously guys that you know Scherzer in particular are very, very familiar with. But that success we're talking about didn't include those guys until last night. And it's just one of the many things that, and one of the many intriguing storylines that goes into when two clubs match up that haven't seen each other in a while, particularly since the trade deadline, and have some former teammates and a lot of different things, a lot of common threads and you know crossover for these two clubs. But you know, you would not really think that a, a club from out west like the San Diego Padres that spent so much of its time just kind of hoping to keep pace with the Los Angeles Dodgers would run into a club that kind of backed into the postseason spot, kind of got pushed out of first place. I mean, they did, not kind of. The Braves put the Mets aside and forced them into this series where we always talked about what does it mean for a club to either have to play this three-game wildcard series or be able to get that rest, which one do you want? I don't really believe in the momentum of forcing myself to play three extra games just to hold on to momentum. I think the Braves are in the exact spot they want to be, and the Mets are getting the hard test and the harsh reality that the Braves might have gotten had things gone a little bit differently in that series in Atlanta a week ago. I know people are going to run out the rest versus rust uh, element of all this. I've seen some some really deep dive uh, analytic stuff that's shown that there's really no correlation. Uh, I, you know, obviously, you know, we're not talking. We we've not really seen this situation though, where you're getting an entire first round buy like this. Yeah. You know, multiple teams getting them to see how that ends up playing into things. Um, but if you're the Padres, I mean, you spent the entire season dealing with arguably the best team in the National League. I think you feel like you're probably pretty equipped to handle the some, whatever the Mets can throw at you. And guess what the reward is for the club that gets through this series between the Padres yep. and the Mets? It's the opportunity to play the Los Angeles Dodgers, who won the most games in baseball and have the top seed in the National League. And that's going to be a tough ride for anybody, you would think. That's what the Mets built their rotation for, to have their aces, to be able to throw against a club like that or anybody else in the postseason. But 
As for the first act, it was not what the Mets were looking for as the Padres grabbed the opening win there. So that's what's going on in the National League wildcard games. Phillies with the lead over the Cardinals after one. Padres lead with the Mets after one. We've got a lot to talk about, though, on the American League side as those wildcard games are ongoing. And we had a wild one on Saturday afternoon that just now went final. We'll talk about it next. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney from the Diamond Sports Radio, 92.9 The Game. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And we continue on From the Diamond. Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney from the Kia Studios in Midtown on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. We just talked about what's going on on the National League wildcard side. And, man, did we really time it out on this Saturday <laughs> afternoon because it seemed like that the Cleveland Guardians and the Tampa Bay Rays were going to play until eternity, I guess, in protest of the Manfred man not being at second base. They thought they'd just go ahead and have, Corey, what you told me was the longest scoreless game in postseason history. That you don't see too often. Crazy, right? I mean, and then there's the other variable of it here is this Oscar Gonzalez walk-off makes the Guardians the first team in American League history to walk off to clinch a playoff round in the 15th inning or later. So I don't chamber that. You might, I, I mean, it's a pretty convoluted stat, but it's still pretty crazy that the team that we thought basically whoever was out of the AL Central was like, well, somebody's got to go represent right. the Central in the, in yeah. the postseason. You do. And they, and they march on and they take down, you know, a team that looked for a, a long time like one that was going to challenge uh, for the American League East crown there as the Yankees kind of falter back. You're like, man, this Rays team might actually pull this thing off. Mm-hmm. And now they get a first round exit. Yeah, and that's baseball sometimes too. But, I mean, I'd, I'd much rather have had the opportunity to play a series and get two out of three than have to have come in, lose one game. I feel like that's almost more convoluted than any stat that we could throw at this particular walk-off. But what's really sad about where I've arrived in my baseball experience is that when you gave me the stat about uh, Oscar Gonzalez having the latest walk-off home run to clinch a postseason round that I immediately knew, and that's an American League history, I immediately knew who had the major league record because I lived it in the first year that I started covering the Braves was in 2005, and it was the 18th inning, and it was the Houston Astros over the Atlanta Braves in the finale of that series, and that was one that was not a whole lot of fun. I can't imagine that that plane ride home was very much fun either. That was the second straight year that the Astros had upended the Braves after Atlanta not losing a postseason series to the Astros for quite a few years before that. The the worm had turned, as it were, and that was one where – you just couldn't believe you lost. And in 18 innings, it just made it that much worse. But the Joey Devine uh, walk-off home run given up to Chris Burke, of all people. I don't know what Chris Burke's doing these days, but Brad Osmus had a game-time grand slam off Kyle Farnsworth in that one. It was a true, and I use this term very, very accurately. I don't throw it around too often. It was a total debacle for the Braves <laughs> as far as their postseason that year. Let me say about this Guardians team. They hit the fewest homers of any postseason team. They were 29th. They were 28th in isolated power. And then they went end up winning these two games off home runs. Yeah, Jose Ramirez, Oscar Gonzalez. I, you know, this is a team that makes a lot of contact, doesn't strike out. They steal bases, and they end up winning two games off of home runs. Welcome to the postseason. And these are two games. And obviously, when you go have a scoreless game going into the bottom of the fifteenth, and obviously, you know, these two offenses are having some trouble scoring. The Rays had a threat brewing in the top of the fifteenth. They had runners on the corner and one man out, weren't able to score uh, despite that. And you know. The Rays scored one run in these two games, which almost was three considering that they played 15 innings in the second one. Only one run from your offense over two days is really not going to get it done no matter who you're facing, no matter who you've got on the mound, more times than not. And I did think, though, 
it was a cruel twist of fate to have longtime Cleveland ace Corey Kluber yeah. be the guy on the mound for the Rays that gave up the walk-off home run to his old franchise. That had to sting a little bit for Mr. Kluber. He's got a lot better memories in that ballpark than that one right there. So now they got to face the Yankees. And, I mean, it's... Congratulations, Yeah, so there you go. So we think about the team that hit the fewest home runs in the American League going into this postseason against the team who hit the most home runs in the American League going into this postseason. But, you know, as we saw last year, it can... And I know that nothing's going to make up for that home run disparity, quite obviously. That's something the Yankees do great, and that's something that Aaron Judge has done better than anybody in the history of the American League to kind of go back to that well for another great stat. But it's all about who's hot in this postseason and who gets on a run. I feel like that really can determine who is going to go round to round and how far a team can go. If this gives the Guardians the kind of momentum that they need to go on a little bit of a run, it's not like they're an, an, an untalented team that accidentally got there. I know we joked about the American League Central being, hey, well, somebody's got to win it, and they might want to think about doing it before they all end up in a three-way tie or four-way tie or whatever it was going to be as far as that was concerned. But the White Sox, they never put it together. The Minnesota Twins, they got hurt. They kind of fell apart down the stretch. The Guardians were the last team standing, and, and not trip to October. And the opportunity to play as long as you can, that's a motivator, I think, for any team, no matter what their record says compared to another club or no matter what the stat sheet says as far as power and maybe even the all-star names because, you know, the Yankees have a lot of household names. The Guardians, not as much. Yeah, but I think they have better pitching, and I think that's going to show out in this yeah. series too because think about the rest. I mean, you're, they're off now till October 11th. Shane Bieber maybe could get that start in game one. Mm-hmm. There's kind of an oddity in that American League uh, Division Series schedule, too. There's two. There's off days between games one and two and games two and three. So I mean, maybe they have an opportunity there to get you know some multiple starts. Tristan McKenzie could obviously yep. go for them in game two. Things could line up really well uh, for the Guardians to get the pitchers they need. Emmanuel Classe is just... I mean, that dude is just next-level nasty. You think about mop, mop, you know mopping down things in, in the ninth. I mean... I, 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 the Yankees are going to be favored. They're the number one seed in the American League, but do not count this Guardians team out because, man, if it's all about pitching in the postseason, they are built for this. Yeah, they just showed you they've got a tremendous bullpen, and they were able to go out and throw 15 scoreless innings to win this game. It's not going to be the rule. That's usually the exception when you have a game like that. But if they needed a little bit of a can we do this, you know, are we are we able to go out and – you know, win these kind of games? The answer was a resounding yes, and they got the one run they needed in the bottom of the 15th inning to walk things off. As you mentioned, they do have to face the New York Yankees in that American League Division Series coming up. And, of course, there's another American League wild card that is on the line. The Seattle Mariners jumped out to a commanding and somewhat surprising lead early on in that game against Alec Manoa, who before he you know, was able to really turn around and figure out what had happened, you know, pressure was not just a thing that you put in your tires. It was a thing that the <laughs> Seattle Mariners are applying to the Toronto Blue Jays in that series. Now, Toronto appears to have, you know, really gotten off to a much better start in that second game. We don't know how this whole thing's going to play out. But for the Seattle Mariners, I went back and looked. You know, the last time that this club was in the postseason, it was 2001. And that was a record-breaking year for that Seattle club to set the single-season wins record. October 20th, 2001 was the last time that the Seattle Mariners won a postseason game. Jamie Moyer beat Orlando Hernandez in Game 3 of the American League Championship Series. Jamie Moyer at that time was probably 45. (laughs) Orlando Hernandez, I don't know that we ever knew exactly how old he was because he defected over from Cuba, and I think there was one of those like, hey, is he 30 or is he 34? I'm not really sure which one. There was a lot of that going around in the late 90s, early 2000s for some of the guys that had come over. But be that as it may, he pitched great for the Yankees in the postseason several times, but not on that particular night. But you start thinking about the 2001 Mariners, it was the year 
obviously, uh, or, or in the in the aftermath of having traded King Griffey Jr. to the Cincinnati Reds. So this was a very look, different-looking club. It was Ichiro Suzuki's rookie year. This was a very, very different landscape across baseball the last time the Mariners were playing in October. Yeah, and I, I thought Luis Castillo was absolutely fantastic. What yesterday. a pickup I mean, for them! Seven and a third shutout innings. I know that they, they, I mean, they basically sold the farm to get a postseason uh, rotation anchor. But I mean, obviously, worth it. They loved this so much that they went out and rewarded him with a contract extension worth more than a hundred million dollars. Yeah, if you're so, going to pay to get the guy, you might yeah, as well pay to exactly. keep the guy. And Castillo was, I mean, he was obviously amped. I mean, the the fastball velocity was 1.5 mile per hour faster than his average this year. The sinker velocity was up nearly two miles an hour. Carried that throughout the game. Seen triple digits. Five times hit 98 wow. or, or higher in his uh, regularly in the final inning. So he was amped. Uh, Seattle's amped, and uh, an opportunity here. I mean, they got to close this thing out. But I thought one of the the more damning things about this situation was a, a fan base that waited so long wasn't going to get a home game. Mm-hmm. Maybe that ends up happening if they can uh, find a way to close things out and, and knock out the Blue Jays. And I feel like Toronto was in the same kind of boat that the Rays were when the Yankees started to falter. And the Yankees faltered for three, four weeks there. It, it started to kind of look like, wait, could this team that's been up by 10 or 11, 12 games all summer long somehow blow this division? Well, the answer was no, they didn't. But the Rays and the Jays both started to kind of heat it up at that same time. So you, you kind of started to wonder as you looked at around September 1st at what the American League East was looking like if the door wasn't open for one of these clubs to go charging ahead. Now, the biggest thing was, as we talked about the wild card all summer long, it just seemed like there's going to be two teams out of the American League East that are going to get in there because the Central was so weak. But the Mariners were a club that was, you know, really underperforming over the first month, month and a half of the year. And I feel like. The time that they took off seemed to be when they got in that huge fight with the Los Angeles Angels, the, yeah. the one that had pretty much everybody involved. Tons of guys were suspended, including the man, both managers, Scott Service, of course, um, you know, the, the skipper of the Mariners, I, I think kind of looked at that as a moment to galvanize that club in a lot of ways. And, hey, here they are with, you know, Julio Rodriguez may be kind of that big-name rookie, but they got Cal Raleigh hitting home runs right and left for them to send them to the wild card to get them a big lead in the wild card series. I mean, this is a team that's better than just one player. I mean, this is a very well-rounded, very hungry young team, and they went out of the trade deadline, to your point, and made themselves better. I thought they really resembled the Braves in a lot of ways, and I, you know, certainly when you think about George Kirby and Michael Harris, you know, George Kirby and you know, in Julio Rodriguez yeah. as opposed to Spencer Strider and Michael Harris II, second, getting so much from rookie position players and rookie pitchers, uh, you know, just but just the makeup of the teams in general, and just so many guys that. You know, we're once JP Crawford was a, a guy that came up and didn't hit it especially well. You know, Dansby yeah. Swanson, you can make correlations to their guys that grew into their roles. Cal Raleigh, um, I, you know, it's a lot, it's a fun team. Jesse Winker, unfortunately, you know, went on the IL uh, right before the postseason, so they don't have him, but. Um, Eugenio Suarez, just so many guys that they went out and acquired and, and build up to, for this moment and to get back here for a fan base that's waited a really long time for it. So, um, again, I thought Castillo was fantastic. It would be wild if the American League East, that you know, we thought this is the most dominant division in baseball, if they end up getting two of their teams knocked out uh, out of the wild card round would be something. I don't remember if it was, and it might have been a couple of years ago, there was a documentary, I think either ESPN uh, 30 for 30 or an MLB Network special on the 1995 ALDS. I know there was a King Griffey Jr. one that came out a couple of years ago where they talked about, you know, that that 95 division series where, oh, by the way, Buck Showalter was the manager of the Yankees that mm-hmm. year um, when Seattle upended New York with the Edgar Martinez walk-off double, the Griffey slide, and all that kind of stuff. That seemed like quite a magical run. But then 97, when they got back, 
and got knocked around by the uh, the Indians at that time in that ALCS. It kind of felt like the Mariners were a club that could have gone all the way that particular year, and they just weren't able to make it happen. Then they trade King Griffey Jr. You lose Alex Rodriguez to free agency, and the next thing you know, you set an all-time single-season wins record, and then you got to wait two decades to get back to the postseason after that. This is a fan base that has suffered for quite a while and, and waited patiently or otherwise to get this opportunity but they do know as well if you do get through the Toronto Blue Jays, which is going to be easier said than done, I think, just based on how good the Blue Jays are, the Houston Astros are waiting on the other side of this, and that's a club the Mariners know all too well from their battles in the American League West. Yeah, and obviously, you know, that's such a, a fantastic pitching staff. They've already announced that Justin Verlander is going to get the game one start for them uh, in the next round. So, you know, you know how deep they can go pitching wise. Yep. I mean, Lance McCullers, you know, they, you can go to Framber Valdez and on and on and on. I mean, they had so much pitching depth that they just, you know, decided to trade away one of their starters and Jake Odorizzi and, and move him to the Braves for Will Smith. How, I mean, how infrequently do we see a team that's, that's, you know, running away with the division decide that they're going to move one of their rotation pieces out? I mean, they're just, it's, it's such a good team and they've been able to weather, you know, the losses of George Springer. They've been able to, to watch Carlos Correa move on and just still be back here with the, the they're the, no, they're the best team in the American League. I mean, yeah. it's uh, it's just wild the way that they've just been able to continue to move on with that monster. Yeah, I would say more so than the loss of Jake Odorizzi at the trade deadline. Doing it without Carlos Correa is impressive. Springer's been gone now for, for yeah, a hot a minute, years, obviously, yeah. but that did change the the complexion of that team. And it's a club that, you know, candidly, and we don't have a ton of time, we're not going to get into a long talk about it, but, you know, they had to over some, overcome some questions about what their success was built on from years prior. But now they have come in and, continued to do the thing and show up at the very end and made it to the World Series against the Braves last year. And, oh, by the way, all they did was go out and try to be the best club in the American League again this year, and it has kind of worked out to this point. But that's what's awaiting on the other side of that American League wild card for the Blue Jays and the Mariners is a date with the Astros. And as we now know, it's going to be the Cleveland Guardians and the New York Yankees in the other American League Division Series. That's a look at Wild Card Weekend. A lot more exciting baseball ahead of us, though. And, of course, the National League Division Series is awaiting the Braves. We'll talk more about their potential opponent and how Atlanta is lined up to get started with their postseason run on October the 11th at Truist Park. And we'll do it next. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney, Sports Radio, 92.9 The Game. place for all things MLB and our Braves. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Wrapping things up here on what has been a very eventful wild card weekend. The Braves, though, still awaiting some events that will let them know exactly who they're going to be facing in the National League Division Series. As we know, that's going to begin on Tuesday with Game 1 at Truist Park. The Braves likely to send out Max Freed, though they've made no official announcements yet as to how their rotation is going to be lined up, but some very simple deduction would lead you to believe Max Freed's in line for that start. It's going to be interesting, though, Corey, watching and seeing exactly what this layoff that we've discussed is going to mean for clubs like the Braves, like the Yankees, the Astros, the Dodgers, obviously, all the clubs that did not have to play in this wild card round that got the bye and thus got four or five days to recharge themselves and get healthy because we already know the importance of winning the division for Atlanta, winning the East, was that they would get this rest. And as it happens, 
it comes at a really great time because you got Spencer Strider, who you're hoping to have back for the National League Division Series. We talked about a little bit earlier in the show, but as we know, there's just still some certain hurdles that he's going to have to clear before the Braves are going to be able to count on having him out there in the NLDS. Yeah, and obviously, you know, whether he is or not, it's going to completely shape the the way that that rotation looks after you get past Max Free. Because I, you know, potentially you could go with him in that number two spot if he's not there. Obviously, then Kyle Wright's got to got to slot up, and then. You know, you're going to have to go a little bit deeper into the options. You're going to have to potentially think about Bryce Selder, Jaco DeRizzi, and those are not conversations you're probably going to have. Well, you got Charlie Morton before you get there. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, you're going deeper down after Charlie Morton. uh, Conversations that you're probably not going to have if you can use Spencer Strider in that mix. No, most certainly not. And it will be one of the questions that the Braves have to answer is, you know, what long man might they carry with them? Uh, but more than that, the biggest question that they have to answer right now is can they have Spencer Strider back out there? And then after spending three or so weeks or a little bit more not having started a Major League Baseball game, will that be a factor at all for Spencer Strider? I mean, if you were to ask him, talk to him, I feel like he'd give you a very casual answer that would include some version of, no, I'm not really thinking about that. I'm going to go out there and do what I do and, you know, concentrate on, you know, doing the things I know how to do. But I can't help but think about just at least a little bit that, you know, we're talking about a five day layoff for the Braves. Talking about a three-plus week layoff for a pitcher right here going into his first career postseason start that has to at least be a little bit of the factor in the back of somebody's mind besides just me. Yeah, and obviously he's had you know kind of a, a, a interesting year too when you think about starting off in the bullpen and then moving into the rotation. He kind of got set in this. Okay, this in the beginning of the season, it's like you know you could potentially pitch you know a couple multiple times in a week. Now knowing okay, I'm going to be going out every five days to now literally doing nothing and wondering if you're going to be able to be available for the postseason. And so, not only just the doing nothing, but yeah. also having to monitor very closely what you do to make sure you don't overexert yourself while going through this oblique injury. It's just a, a big murky kind of situation where at no point did the Braves ever ever say, well, this is an oblique strain and it's you know going to be X amount of weeks. It's pretty much been a, well, he's got some discomfort in there. It's flared up. Now we're going to give him a little bit more time. They did finally have to put him on the injured list. They thought maybe at first, hey, we caught this so early, maybe he only misses a start. Maybe he doesn't miss a start. We'll kind of see how the whole thing plays out. I guess he was always going to miss at least one, but he could avoid the injured list, I guess, is the uh, the the point of all of this, but that did not happen, and that did not play out that way. And then after that big strikeout performance that got him to 200 strikeouts on the year, he did not start another game for the Braves down the stretch. But Atlanta was able to cobble it together in the rotation. They were able to get things done. They were able to sweep the New York Mets. They were able to win the National League East. And Spencer Strider made some big contributions towards getting him into a position to do that. Now he has an opportunity perhaps to have an even bigger contribution toward the Braves taking their next next steps towards repeating as World Series champions. Now, it's not just Spencer Strider's health that came, became a little bit of a storyline in the last week or so because we saw Max Free a little bit under the weather in his final start against the New York Mets. So I think this is kind of the time that's good for him uh, to just at least have whatever was going on completely calm down and have a chance to just get back to feeling a little bit more normal and not like he's got to go running through the dugout down the tunnel the next time he takes them out. Yeah, and I mean, I mentioned before, you know, the rest versus rust thing. Obviously, you know, the, the Braves being in the situation where you can get guys in Strider that you were wondering, is he going to be a part of things? And Freed, you know, who was went out with illness the last time out, uh, getting them more time is obviously invaluable. But, you know, to kind of dive into the numbers a little bit here, if you go back since 2004, teams that have at least four days off in uh, well, in in series are seven and six. Ones that are five days off are two and two. Ones that have six days off are two and one. There's there's almost no correlation between. No. Is it going to matter whether or not you're sitting out too long? The one thing we don't know, and as I said before, we don't know how it plays into this particular setup where you have a team that has to go and play three straight games against a team that 
you know, was literally just kind of hanging out for five days. So I think we don't know how that's going to play out, but yeah. historically, nothing about this situation tells us that you can expect rust to be an issue. Well, I know the thing that for the team that has to play the three straight days is they probably are going to have to use some version of their three best pitchers and then not have enough time to completely reset their rotation. Now, if you win in two and then get the couple of days and, and maybe depending on how the schedule was set up in the American League, you said there's a possibility of that. I don't think that's really the I know it's not the case in the National League, and I know it's not the case for how things were lined up for the Braves had they had to use three of their best starting pitchers and, and played all three games in that wild card series. Of course, that's the other caveat. They would not have had time to turn things back around and have somebody on the mound for them the way that they would by getting to rest. And the only the team that I can think of that was on such a run through the postseason where you just kind of wondered if having to rest might have really messed them up was the 2007 Rockies. Because they went on that torrid stretch through like August, September, October, ran through the playoffs, were just beating everybody right and left, and then all of a sudden they had to sit around and uh, sit around and wait for the Boston Red Sox to punch their ticket to the World Series. It did seem like they came out having been kind of you know icing the kicker, if you want to call it that. They managed to kind of cool them off a little bit because they were just so hot that they just didn't mess around in the NLCS that year. Well, I know that the Tigers, you know, in, in 2006 and in 2012, they both got there in, into the World Series in, in very quick fashion, and they end up losing both of those two series after getting breaks as well. So, it, I mean, it's not oh, it's not a hard science to say, you know, one way sure. or the other, but um, certainly those have been fact. It is a weird, by the way, it is a very weird quirk in the schedule for the LDS where the, uh, the, the, the National League has to play the 11th and 12th for their games one and two. That's in both their series. The American League is 11th, the 11th, 13th, and 15th for games one uh, through three. So they are getting, they're literally, both their series are getting a day off between game one and two and games uh, two and three that the National League is not getting that advantage over those first two games. So kind of a strange quirk that both ty- uh, sides are having to deal with. Yeah, and I don't think I'd really dug deep enough into the American League side for obvious reasons, just in terms of what their scheduling quirks do or do not look like, because it does seem like an advantage of sorts, because that was the big thing that, that would, it impressed upon me. The most important part about not having to play in that wild card series was, you know, you weren't going to have the opportunity to reset your rotation through rest days in the first couple of rounds. Clearly, you play the wild card three straight through, then you would get a day off, and then you would have to start the NLDS and not get a, a travel day until before game five, if I'm not mistaken. And the NLDS side, is that how that's lining up? Yeah, so the NLDS game one, for the Braves, game one is the 11th, game two is the 12th, and you get the 13th as an off day, then 14th, 15th, 16th. That's both National League series, and the American League is the 11th, 13th, 15th, 16th, okay. and 17th. So the off days after game two. But then yes. you'd have to play the next three in a row, so that would basically mean that it makes it a little bit harder. But the AL's doing the same thing. They're playing their last three games potentially in the series are in three consecutive days. So they're getting an additional day off that the National League's not getting. Which is strange, yeah. but then you think about particularly the series against the Dodgers where if it works out that it's the Padres, well, who cares if you have to travel up the highway but if it's the New York Mets, you're going to have to fly across the country to play Game 5 for both these teams, correct? Yep. That doesn't sound like the best idea in terms of your overall. And a lot of this is brought on, of course, we know by the fact that the lockout forced the regular season to have changes made to it, and thus the postseason, I think, had to absorb the loss of a couple of off days just to try to get the World Series to end sometime before the 10th of November. But why would you do that? Why would you have the American League getting an additional off day during a playoff round that the National League doesn't get? I, don't I just know. don't I just don't understand it. Burning questions for Rob Manfred. You uh, can yeah. add that to the list. There I you go. really could not make heads or tails of that. But as far as what the Braves do know is that they have to be ready to play their first of the division games on Tuesday 
the 11th at Truist Park. You've got that home field advantage. Let's talk a little bit about the two clubs that they could be facing. We talked about this earlier in the show, but I just feel like it's worth going back to and kind of trying to size up. The St. Louis Cardinals were not necessarily lighting the world on fire when the Braves saw them the first time at Truist Park. The Cardinals were, though, able to sting the Braves in the series in late August at Bush Stadium, in particular the walk-off, walk-blown save by Kinley Jansen, probably one of the most debilitating and, and frustrating losses for the Braves over the course of the season. But Atlanta had a good chance of winning that series as well. They played that club pretty tough. And we know that the Braves and Phillies have gone head-to-head 19 times this year, and Atlanta you know, has more than held its own with the Philadelphia Phillies this year as well. So I, I think it comes down to Corey the devil you know versus the yep. one you don't know quite as well. Yeah, and the Cardinals, I mean, obviously, you know, they were so good in the second half. I mean, Nolan Arenado, Paul Goldschmidt were numbers two the and pool three. The Pujols story. I mean, yeah, the Pujols story, Yadier Molina and his swan song as well. And then the arms that they went and got after the trade deadline, Jose Quintana, Jordan Montgomery. Um, we mel- talked about Helsley, and, you know, they got Jordan Hicks back, you know, who proceeded to touch 100 miles an hour eight times when he came back off the injured list. And, you know, he pitched yesterday as well. But the Phillies, I mentioned this before, they have the better staff. Their starters were better in the season than the pod- in the Cardinals, better in the second half, better since St. Louis got those reinforcements. Um, the bullpen's not the problem that it used to be. It was fifth in the National League. Obviously, they're built around the long ball offensively. Kyle Schwarber, who hit led the NL with 46 homers. Um, the Cardinals got hot at the right time, but the Phillies were able to take game one in, in you know, really dramatic fashion. I think the obviously they would rather have the Phillies. Um, if they get the Cardinals, they know they match up well against them. That series was 4-3. They were 11-8 and against the Phillies. They did outscore both those teams. But, you know, think about it. St. Louis took 2-3 or three in that August 26-28 series. The Phillies held a 19-16 edge in splitting their most uh, recent series with the Braves on August 22nd to the 25th in terms of runs scored. So I think either one of those teams has confidence going in against the Braves. But uh, I'm, I'm sure the Braves would much rather face a team they know all too well on the Phillies. Yeah, they were, as you mentioned, 11-8 and eight head-to-head. If you look at where the Braves were, I mean, in terms of teams and runs scored against, they scored 90 runs against the New York Mets. They scored 88 runs against the Philadelphia Phillies. That's well more than they scored. Well, the Marlins, 85, but even the uh, – or excuse me, the Washington Nationals, 116 runs. So make that third. So you get, you play a team 19 times, you're going to find that those are going to be toward the top. I forgot how bad the Nationals were because they were <laughs> hidden somewhere between where baseball reference breaks it down between over 500, under 500, and then interleague play. The Washington Nationals have managed to sneak up a spot that I did not expect. They were, in fact, a bad baseball team in 2022 and probably will be again next year. But you know, the Braves hit 24 home runs against the Phillies. They posted a team OPS of 750. So... I mean, they've had good fortune there, and they've been particularly good against them at Truist Park. And I think it's obviously, if you're going to be playing postseason games, you'd love to be playing as many of them as you can in your home ballpark. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the crowd, all that, I mean, everything is going to be, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of a lot of talk about that uh, when we get into Monday uh, in that workout day, just about playing in front of that crowd again. And um, you think about guys like Matt Olson. You know, again, he's been two years removed from the postseason, going to get his first opportunities here to do just that in his hometown uh, in, in front of that crowd. And, you know, I think it's going to be an electric atmosphere, and I can't wait to see who they end up playing because, I mean, this has been a lot of fun, and it's been weird sitting back after we've gone, you know, 100 miles an hour through this uh, season to get to that point, and then you just kind of just completely stop and have to wait five days. It's uh, it's bizarre. Uh, yeah. I don't know if there's any way to put it. But I'd just rather have the rest than oh, be sure. forced to play three hey, I'm not games playing, for three so games. So for me, it's right. just like, you know, I'll, I'll gladly, you know, yeah, just sit no. back and, and, and here we are. We'll talk about the game for a couple of hours, and that'll work out pretty well for us on a Saturday afternoon. Now, Matt Olson did lead the Braves with five home runs against the Phillies um, in 2022. Dansby Swanson, though, batted 333 
with 26 hits against Philadelphia, and Austin Riley also had 26 hits and a 350 average against the Phillies head-to-head. And clearly, in 19 games, you're going to get a lot bigger sample sizes there than were we going to get with the Cardinals and the Braves, who played each other just six times over the course of the season. But again, as you look at these two clubs and the way that they line up, I feel like the Phillies, you know, having Zach Wheeler, having Aaron Nola, that those are weapons that the St. Louis Cardinals can't necessarily boast. They had to go out and kind of fortify their rotation. They do have Adam Wainwright, all the respect in the world for him and what he's accomplished in October. You cannot rule that kind of thing out. But otherwise, they don't have Flaherty to lean on in the same way that maybe they could have a couple of years ago and did in 2019. It's not quite the same rotation. They had to kind of go out and make trades and get a little bit better that way. Yeah, and they were obviously predicated by offense, right? They're predicated by by uh, Arenado. They're predicated by Goldsmith, those MVP candidates. Yeah, uh, that's what's going to fuel them if they're able to to move on. And you know, they're going to have to rely on those power arms and those bullpens that failed them uh, in that first game against the Phillies. Well, whether it is the uh, the Braves and the Cardinals or the Braves and the Phillies, the National League Division Series is slated to start at Truist Park next week. It'll be Game One on Tuesday. We're going to have. So much for you here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We'll bring you post-game coverage each and every postseason game. It'll be myself and Corey. We will get you caught up on that day's action, let you hear from Brian Snicker, the players, and, of course, we'll be taking your calls about the Atlanta Braves as they make their march toward October and look to repeat as World Series champions. Corey, as always, had a great time. Look forward to doing it again next week. Yeah, can't wait for these postseason games. Let's bring it. Next up is the postseason. For Corey McCartney, I'm Grant McCauley. This has been From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. To right field. Garcia going back, looking up at it. Our Braves are in the playoffs, and nobody's got you covered like us. Join us as our Braves insider Grant McCulley is live after the last Braves out of every playoff game. Grant will break down the game and get your reaction as well. It's the only place in town where you can react after the game. Absolutely amazing. Finally, know what real good baseball is. Our Braves are looking for a repeat, and nobody's got you covered like us. The game is everywhere. everywhere. Sports Radio 92.9, The Game.